Today's scripture is taken from Romans 3, 21 to 31. Righteousness through faith. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God, Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith? Do we then nullify the law of this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Those of you who don't know, I'm Patrick Boatwright. I'm our pastor of student and families here. And uh, it is my really sincere privilege and honor, as always, to uh, be able to stand before you and Bring the word of the Lord. Um, This is your first Sunday. Today we are continuing our study of Romans, some light summer reading, you know. Um, And, uh, you know, I can adequately share with you my excitement because I I truly believe that the Lord has a particular word for us today. Um, And I'm I'm excited to hear that. It's a word of hope and invitation. Uh, But to really understand this word of hope and invitation, uh, we kind of have to look back a bit and set the table. And so uh, Michael's somewhere. He's going to join me here in a second. There he goes. Um, If you've been following along for the last few weeks, then you've realized that the first two and a half chapters of Romans that we've been going through are dedicated pretty much to the total uh, pervasiveness of sin and our requisite judgment. We have been talking a lot about how terrible you all are. Thank you for coming back. And that can be really hard to swallow, right? Because sin is not really a word we use outside of the context of faith and church and religion and things we're protesting against, right? Um, And so it's easy to get hung up on this idea of sin as a deliberate, malicious denial and rejection of God. This idea of a person just saying, I hate you, God, get out of my face. But I think that paints an incomplete picture of what sin really is and what we see in Scripture. See, the poetry of the first chapters of Genesis starts with a God and a void. There's everything and nothing. In which he places a formless, empty something. And with the word, a spark, and the conductor begins his work, establishing firmaments and calling forth clouds, the tenor of his voice pushing back the waters to create dry lands and open seas. And creation unfolds with the complexity of a Tchaikovsky concerto. 
Birds, fish, and every creeping thing eventually fill the once void with whistles and roars. And then, right in the midst of it all, smack dab in the center, he places his magnum opus. He created them, a man and his God, a woman and her God, and he binds the two in intimacy with each other and himself. And they're in perfect harmony. And the world functions during this time as intended. It's a symphony of beauty and melody, sustained by the creator, and each part of creation is playing its role to perfection. Like the rhythm of your favorite song, that one you dance to, that always gets your feet typing. The world is in perfect time. And then, through willful disobedience, everything gets thrown out of tune. The very earth itself loses its way and entropy invades. Not just the physical forces of the world, but our very essence of our minds and our souls begin the discordant drift to chaos. And at once we become a people struggling to hum a tune they once knew and now can only muster mumbles and fits. And if we're internally aware and honest, we've all experienced that frustrated longing to be in sync with one another in this place we call home. And every now and then a familiar refrain will cut through and we see the firefighter sacrificially rush into the building when we see the neighborhood cop playing hopscotch with the kids, when we give generously to a friend in need, when we receive in our time of need, when we listen to a story of a king once gone and come again to set everything right, In those moments, the melody comes through and we're reminded of some innate song that we once held so dear. And if only briefly we're reminded that there was and is something better than the brokenness we've come to know. But then you get that joint assignment with that person you know just hates your gut and thinks she's better than you. You take your taxes to that accountant who just works magic you don't bother to ask details about. You demean yourself at every chance you get in the hopes of some false humility or worse yet because you really do hate every part of yourself. You knowingly swipe the credit card spending more than you have. You go to that website, hold that grudge, drink that one more drink. This lie turns into that fight that brings about the end. And in our ignorance, stubbornness, or rejection, we just keep playing the wrong notes. And that, for our purposes, is the nature of sin. Attitudes, thoughts, and deeds that place us out of tune with God's original composition. And yet the news for us today is that all is not lost. In fact, it's just the contrary. So let us pray, and we're going to read what the word of the Lord has to say. God, we thank you that though we are out of tune and out of sync so often, that you are the master composer, the grand conductor, and that you are teaching us, if we will let you, how to play the song that is within our hearts, that you are bringing us together in harmony, the renewal of all things. And so in our sin and in our brokenness, God, We come to you and say, would you teach us again that song of old? Would you bring us close to yourself and remind us of who we are? 
So, may these words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be a pleasing sight and sound to you. And would you teach us something today? Come, Lord Jesus, speak to us, your people. In your name we pray, amen. All right, thanks, Michael. I hope that, that landed. I just wanted us to kind of see this picture because it's important if we're going to take this turn. I drew the long straw of this series. The last three sermons have all been about how terrible you are. But we get to turn the corner today, uh, and I get the, the privilege of doing that. But if we're really going to turn the corner into the glory that is to come, where Romans chapter 3 takes us, and therefore we really do have to just understand the measure of brokenness, because the glory of God and his sanctification and his renewing work is directly correlated to the amount of brokenness that's in us. And if we're just not that broken, then the cross is frankly just not that big of a deal. But I don't know about you, but I have been acutely aware of the places and the times and the ways in which I am out of tune and out of sync. I see it in my marriage. I see it in my job. I see it in my friendships. I see it in my own view of myself. Often, I, you know, Seth said it last week that I can't even measure my, I can't even hold myself to my own standards. I so often fail, let alone to think about some standard set by a God who is perfect. Some of you are also acutely aware of your failings and the ways in which you're out of tune. Others of you just deny the music, right? There's nothing to this. If there's music, I can't hear it, and this is all for naught, right? And we reject it. But the beauty of what Paul has to say is that for those of us who are hoping to get set right, today has come. And when we pick it up right here in verse 21, Paul says this. I love this, and this is our, where we're going to start. He says these two words that change everything. But now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. But now. I'm not just centering on those two words because it's, you know, uh, fun. But when you actually look in the original text, when you look in the Greek, Paul himself puts extra emphasis on the word now. There's the Greek word noon, none, or now. And then he says, new knee, which is the way to add emphasis. But now, but now everything has changed. There's a definite, this is a definite point in time. There was once what was and now what is. And there's a hope to come. But what is that hope? It means that we can be made right, that we don't have to continue in our brokenness. How we so often, though, um, try, Right? There, there is a multi-billion dollar industry in this country alone around self-help. And the purpose of health, self-help is really saying, I know that I'm out of tune and I'm trying to like configure, reconfigure myself. And the reason why it's so profitable, because it doesn't work. All the things that we try keep failing. And so you have to do like, like with our diets, you know, it's the keto diet and Whole30 and this and that. I've been on like every diet you can possibly imagine. Uh, there's a joke around... Uh, our staff office and someone comes in and uh, the RX bars show up, you know. And so we know that someone has decided to go through Whole30 again uh, and then we just all order Big Macs. Uh, (laughs) Well, we keep trying, right? We keep trying different things all in the search to be made right. 
If you haven't listened to last week's sermon, I, I just really encourage you to go back. But Seth makes this beautiful point of breaking down all these different righteousness, right? Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been man- made manifested. But sometimes it's just not good enough. And so we try our righteousness of self, our righteousness of moral uh, aptitude, our righteousness of, of our intellectual capabilities, our theological knowledge, our righteousness of justice and our job, all these different ways in which we are trying to say in our own eyes that we are made right. For the Jewish people, they created 613 laws. You know, just put that on your wall for your kids. 613 laws, and you got to keep all of them. It was impossible. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it seems like, it reminds me, you know, my wife and I, we've been starting on this journey of family and, and, uh, and like trying to have a baby and stuff. And that has been the craziest journey, let me tell you. Because what I've learned is that like, you can do all the right things and like, there's like all a million things. There's temperatures, there's like time of days, there's like, there's a whole industry around this. And you can do all the right things and everything can be fine and it still just isn't happening. It just is outside of your control. Try as you might to make what you want of yourselves. It just is outside of your control, right? And so we all have experienced that. Try as we might to fix whatever it is we see as wrong. It's not working. So what happens then? When our own ways of righteousness fail us, when it all just seems pretty hopeless, it's easy just to resign to that hopelessness and be swallowed up. But there's hope for us today, a hope that actually works, and this is what I really love. Uh, The NOT version says it this way, verse 24 of Romans, yet God in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Yet, God. And all the ways we've tried to fix ourselves, have we ever imagined that maybe if we stopped trying and came to the end of ourselves, that God could then work? I told this story, I think, uh, a few uh, times ago when we were together of how I heard, I don't swim, okay? Um, I stay far away from large bodies of water. Um, it's just a thing. Um, but, uh, but I've heard from those who do swim uh, that for lifeguards in training, when a person is drowning, right, you have two options. One, you have to let that person, if they're flailing and fighting, you have to just let them go until they tire themselves out, right? Because if you don't, they'll just take you down as well. Or you have to, like, physically knock them out and bring them in to save themselves. And I feel like such a picture of these times where we're trying to flail and save ourselves, and God's just patiently waiting for us to tire ourselves out. And he's like, okay, I'll bring you in now. This is the picture. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. And that is such a good news because it means that we don't have to do anything. Ephesians says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved, Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The beautiful thing about the righteousness that God offers is that he brings it about from within us. And it's not dependent upon our work or our fortitude or our self-discipline. 
not dependent upon our work, our fortitude, our self-discipline. It's completely separate from us, right? And so our only, our action in it is just to trust in it, to receive it. Like these chairs you're sitting in, right? You sit in those chairs doesn't, isn't required for it to work and to hold you up. That is not a prerequisite for it holding you up. But you sit in it because you believe that it will. And so it works. It does its job. It holds you up. So the, faith of, the, the righteousness of God is not dependent on us making something happen, but it's only just, the, it's there for us whether we want it or not. And so we can sit in it and find rest for our souls. Now there's a, Paul breaks it down this way further when we go into 20, verse 25, right? So verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Man, summer, we're going here. Propitiation, are you ready? What does that mean? God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is actually a really beautiful picture. The word uh, there, propitiation, Greek, hilasterion, means a mercy seat, all right? And so if you know anything about ancient Israel and God interacting with his people, there is the Ark of the Covenant. We've all seen it on, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They open it, everyone dies, okay? That's kind of a thing with it. Don't touch it or you die. Um, it's like God's, like, you know, fancy China. <laughs> like, don't touch this or I will kill you. Um, <laughs> And so he has this Ark of the Covenant, and this is what's really beautiful, right? The, on the Ark of the Covenant, there were objects inside, which we're going to talk about, and then there was this lid, and there was this gold lid, and then there was these two statues of two angels, two cherubs with their wings held out like this, facing each other, right, pointing at each other. And then on top, in this space in the middle, was called the mercy seat. And God says, he says this in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you. And so the mercy seat is the place where God meets with his people. It's where he comes and does work and he's active. And the mercy seat was really crazy because the only people, you can just go into the mercy seat or into the, the, the lost ark. You know, so it was the, the holies of holies was this place inside the Jewish temple. It was the centermost place, Right? And the only time that the Holy of Holies could be entered was on the Day of Atonement. And it could only be entered by a high priest, the Jewish high priest, the leader of all leaders of a special tribe. And he was covenant to do this one job. And he would come in on the Day of Atonement and he would take the blood of a bull that had been sacrificed, right? And he would take the blood and with his fingers, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then God would come and do business. And this would be an atoning act for himself, for his family, for the tabernacle, for the people of Israel. This provided a covering. And what's crazy about it is when you think about what's inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things inside of the Ark of the Covenant. First was a golden pot of manna. It's very interesting, right? Because this golden pot of manna, uh, manna was his bread that God provided for the Israelites when they were wandering through the desert. It's how he fed them. And it's this golden pot which kind of factored into the way in which they cast these false idols, right? 
And so then you also have this rod of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. Moses, let my people go. We all know that. Uh, Moses, Aaron was Moses' brother. When Moses was too afraid to do the things the Lord had called him to, he said, take your brother Aaron. And Aaron was given a rod. And through that rod, miracles were done. Right? And so that rod was also placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And there and also in the Ark of the Covenant were the two stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain containing the Ten Commandments. And I think these are particularly poignant items. I think God is making a message here, right? Because first, we have these commandments, his standard, his original composition. This is his music. This is how the world works. And the point of that word, the point of those commandments was never for us to keep them because we can't, but it was to show us that we can't. And then inside of this also was in that golden pot of manna fashioned like they did the many idols, right? So when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, what did the people do? They were like, he's gone too long. This God ain't real. Let's make one. And so they cobbled together all the gold and fashioned a golden calf and they worshiped it. And so both, and so what this is a picture of is not just God's provision, but how we've perverted his provision and chosen all these other provisions and forms of righteousness, all these other manas we've created and manifested in our life. It's a picture of our rebellion in the midst of his provision. And then Aaron's rod and staff, right, is both how God chose to lead, but it wasn't his original intention. Intentionally, God wanted to lead his own people. He wanted a theocracy. I am my God. I am God, and you are my people. And they rejected that. We need flesh and blood. Uh, Thanks, God, but, you know, I really need someone in front of me. And so Moses is called, and Aaron de facto. And so we have this rod, which is both a symbol of God's leading and direction, but also a symbol of our rejection of the authority of God. And so in this covenant is all the ways in which we've fallen short and all the ways God has folded it to meet us. And on top of all of that, the blood is sprinkled so that he can look down and see us and atone us and do business. And that's what Jesus does. His sacrifice covers us in our rebellion, covers us in all the different manners we've tried to acquire. And this serves to satisfy the penalty. Paul goes on to say this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So maybe you get it, and we're going to wrap it up here. Maybe today you're acutely aware of all the ways in which you're broken, and maybe you've been trying to fix it yourself, and it's not been working. And what I'm saying to you is that there is a way to get back in tune, and that is to receive what Jesus has done, his atoning work. But what does that look like, right? What does that really, I mean, you've heard that before, but okay, give me a picture. What does that, what does that mean to let God be at work in his life? How does he actually put us in sync? Um, it reminds me of two stories. One, I was a camp counselor uh, in my college days, uh, this camp called Camp Bob Cooper in Somerton, South Carolina, right? 
And so I used to work there and make money and uh, be in nature. And we'd have these two weeks where uh, two of the weeks that we would have a special needs camp. And so we would host campers with various disabilities. And uh, we were, as a counselor, in charge of a group of about five to seven campers. And we had to care for them. And the care was a lot. I mean, there was, like I said, various disabilities. And I had a group where uh, I had one person who would have seizures. And uh, there was this great time, I'll never forget it. He uh, had a seizure, and when you have a seizure, you lose all functions, and he relieved himself. And so we had to take off all his clothes. I had to, like, shower him, give him new clothes. And he had this belt that he always wore. And so it was soiled, and so I I put it in the bag. He couldn't wear it. And so he kind of comes to, and he comes around. He's like, "Uh, where's my belt? And I'm like, well, you soiled it. And he goes, well, why didn't you tell me to go to the bathroom? And I'm like, because you were having a seizure. Like, what do you want from me? And I was just, like, so frustrated. I was like, are you kidding me with this? Uh, And uh, I just became so short with those campers. Because they were a lot of work. Can I just be honest? It was the last. I came for the girls. You know, that's why I was a camp counselor. I was not here for this, you know. And it was really hard. And then there came this one night, right? Uh, we'd have to sleep outside of their, their dorms so, you know, in case they needed us. And I'm, I'm sleeping uh, outside of their dorms one night. And I, all of a sudden, uh, become the sickest I've ever been in my life. Uh, like, I can't, like, I can barely move. And I, my bones ache. Um, I am like almost pretty much incapacitated. And I like literally, like something's wrong. I got to get back to my, our like camp, our counselor dorms. And I like almost crawl back there. And I have like some, some of my counselor roommates are in there and they see me come in in this terrible shape. And they like, bro, are you okay? And we got to help you. And so they literally, like, take me and, like, they strip me down and they put me in the shower. And I get showered and I get cummed out and I'm, like, laying on the couch and they're, like, feeding me, like, soup. And they're caring for me. And then I go back and, like, I can't leave for too long because there's not a lot of counselors. I go back to lay in this sleeping bag and this voice kind of, like, whispers. And it's just, you know, those thoughts that just aren't your thoughts. But it's in your head, and you're just like, okay. Uh, there, was this, there was just this, this whisper of understanding of, like, Patrick, now you know what it's like to need the help of others. And how people have just so graciously loved you in your incapacity. So now, can you do the same? And there was this, like, wave of conviction as I just looked over how short I had been with my campers and my counselors, or those campers that I was in charge of. And these tears of just, like, repentance came. I was just broken. And I just said, God, you're totally right. I've really been screwing this up. And I fell asleep, and I woke up perfectly fine. Not just on the outside, not just physically, but spiritually, mentally, I was better than I was before because now I could go back into this job not caring just about finding girls, but also genuinely extending the love of God to people 
who need it like everyone else. I would like to say that was the last time the Lord had to teach me about something I screwed up, um, but it's not. There's, uh, I've been married now two and a half years. My beautiful wife, Catherine, there she goes. What's up, boo? Uh, you're looking good, girl. Uh, I told you you're trying to have a baby, so. You gotta get... uh, th- um, but uh, <laughs> she's going to kill me. Uh, we've married two and a half years, and uh, I think this is fair to say, uh, but, you know, our marriage has been, I always say this, it's been easy in all the hard ways and hard in all the easy ways. And what I mean by that, um, those usual arguments of like finances and communication and all that kind of stuff, that's just come very naturally. I mean, we've been together in total like four years or so. And honestly, I don't, I can remember a time we've even raised our voices at one another. We've had disagreements, but we're just not, that's just not a natural thing for us. And, and so those, all those ways have been pretty easy. But what's been hard, what's been difficult is that we are so completely different. And so usually like, you know, you meet this person, you have all the same interests and you pretty much just like married your mother, you know, and like, or yourself. And so you're just like, this is the greatest. And you have this. So we are just so very completely different. And so in the beginning of our marriage, in those first few months, it was especially, it was really taxing. Um, and... Uh, there, I have this habit, right? So Catherine would do things that I didn't do, uh, like oatmeal, okay? Uh, we're both somewhat from the South. I am from South Carolina, the true South. Uh, she is from Florida, uh, the Northern South. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and so we eat grits. Um, we do not eat oatmeal. Um, and so she would like make this big bowl of, a bowl of oatmeal, um, which to me just looks like gruel. Like, this is like Oliver Twist voluntarily, you know, like, why are you signing up for this? And so what would happen is my wife would just, you know, like Miss Muffet eating her curds and whey, she would just be sitting, just minding her own business, eating her oatmeal that she enjoys, and I would come along, and I would just be like, oh my gosh, how can you eat that? You are a savage. And I, and I, and I would go on this, like, five-minute, okay, maybe ten, like, rant uh, of like, like this bit, this stand-up bit on how like that was so barbaric that she would eat this gruel or she would, you know, uh, get in the bed with like her pants that like she had been walking around in. <sighs> Lord have mercy. Uh, and, you know, we'd laugh and it'd be like, you know, cracking up and I'm just going in on, oh, my God, that's so barbaric. How could you do that? Oh, my gosh, how could you eat that? Oh, how could you say that? Oh, how could you believe that? Blah, blah, blah. And then one day I'm uh, listening to Malcolm Gladwell's audio book, Blink. And in this book, and for those of you who haven't read it, it's essentially about how we know things before we know them. And, and uh, when we get saturated with something, um, we then can uh, process uh, situations uh, in microseconds, right? And so he talks about this famous uh, counselor, this marriage uh, psychologist, uh, John Gottman. And John Gottman has been studying marriages and relationships for over 35 years. And he has studied them so much and so in-depthly that he can sit in a restaurant and overhear a conversation between a couple, and within three minutes he can, with pretty high predictability, guess whether they're going to make it or not. 
He's just become so accustomed and adept of knowing relationships. And so John Gottman has come up with what he calls like the four horsemen of like uh, relationships. I'm not going to go in all of them, but there was main one that they pointed out. They were like, what's, what's one that you would say is like a, a pretty big indicator of, of a due marriage? And he said, um, yeah, it's contempt. It's when one person not just disagrees, but when they place themselves in a, in a, in a position of superiority over the other person. And I'll tell you exactly where I was. I was in a car to go, right? So my legs are in the trunk. And uh, <laughs> I'm driving around Grand Army Plaza, and this comes on. And immediately the Spirit of God, again, that voice that I don't know, it's, it's not my thoughts because I don't think this way because I'm the person who ridicules my wife for eating oatmeal, right? That's who I am. Those are my original thoughts. That's my brokenness. But this other voice within me, this other thought from somewhere else goes, that's you. You hold your wife in contempt and you place yourself and your desires above her. And while it's all fun and games now, at month two, in year 20, it's not funny, it's just contempt. And it's wrong. And it denigrates her and it denies the beauty of who God has made her and her desires. And I just start weeping. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I am so broken. You're so right. And I get home and I have to go to my wife and I have to be like, babe, we have this thing we air grievances. Uh, or this thing we just have these kind of talks and like, what would you share? And I'm just like, um. I have to ask your forgiveness. I have using this contemptuous language against you. It was funny, my sweet wife, she, she, she's not like, like, she doesn't know that things are wrong until they're critical. And so for her, this hadn't even been a, it hadn't even come full blown where she'd realize, like, to be able to name, this is what you're doing to me. But what she did say was, you know, I do feel like sometimes I'm just not good enough. That I don't measure up to this standard. I don't know. I just, sometimes I just feel dumb or I feel whatever. And which broke my heart even more because look at what I've been doing to my wife. And my brokenness. And it wasn't malicious. I didn't even realize it was like this thing. But that's what the Spirit of God does. When we're out of tune, he shows us how we're out of tune. And he says, and if you'll listen, I'll teach you how to play correctly. I'll teach you how to be in harmony with your wife. And that's not using contemptuous language, even in the areas that you disagree or you dislike, right? But it's being able to show respect and love and dignity and integrity because she is fashioned in the image of God, full of beauty, full of worth, irrespective of you and her standing with you. So get it together. And then you have a choice. I can reject it and keep going and we'll see how that plays out. Or I can, I can give up, and I did. And let me tell you, we don't use that language in our house. I don't use that language. But it's not like immediately gone. I still have to be aware. So my role in this is now that I'm just constantly aware of how I'm broken and I just constantly give it to the Lord. And I say, God, man, I, I got I to gotta be aware of this. God, show me. Show me the ways in which I'm broken. 
how I'm continued broken, broken in this area and how you want to make me whole. And he does it. Let me tell you, he does it. You can talk to my wife. She'll tell you the truth. And then there's something else. So it's not completely, I'm not completely free, right? But he's making me, he's putting me back in tune. And so our invitation today as we close and the band comes up to play is this. If, that, if any of this resonates with you, if you've been in a place where you know you're out of tune, you're discordant in your relationships, in your own personal sense of self, with the world at large, and your desire is to be made whole and to put back together, there is a, there is a hope. But now, today is the day, but now, Today can be a new day. There was what, what was, and now what can be. And even though you've tried everything, you've tried everything based on yourself, yet God, yet God can do what you fail to do. If only you'll let him. If only you'll surrender. And so the band's going to come up to play, and we're going to uh, take a moment for just personal reflection and honesty before ourselves and God. And so I just want you to just take a second and just listen for that voice. Listen for that thing beyond. It whispers. It's still and it's small. And hear the ways in which uh, your brokenness has been made manifest. And then we're going to come and we're going to pray. And I'm going to extend an invitation uh, so that you can come and just say, hey, I want today to be the day where I I start living in the now, allowing God to do his work. So let's take a moment, and then we'll we'll come in invitation. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward, and I just want to now move us into this invitation. If If this has resonated with you today, and you're just like, man, I'm ready. I want some more of this. I want to be made right. I want to be made whole. We have people that are going to be up here just to pray with you, right? This can feel like, you know, I come from the South. We do these altar calls where it's like, you, come on down. Today is the day, right? And it can feel just so weird. Like, is that really what it's called? I don't know if salvation is about saying some particular prayer, but I think of it this way. I've been on a road trip. I've driven across the country twice. And there are times where you're going to a destination on a road trip and you kind of just wake up in the place and you realize, oh, I've been just riding along here all along. And you're like, oh, I'm here now and I'm going to set up residency and this is where I live. And you go and you do all the things to set up residency in that place. And there are other times where you're like, I am going to California. And when you get there to the sign, you get out and you take pictures and you pose and you dab and you put it on Instagram and life is great. And you're like, I am here, right? Salvation is like that, I would say. For some of us, we've been just kind of riding along and we're kind of just like, man, it makes sense. I'm here. I didn't realize I was here, but I'm here. And I want to be here. And I want to claim that. And so this can be a step of that. And for some of you, you've been trying to like figure something out. And today is a day where you're like, you know what? This is the day I've made this. I'm going to make this the day. This is the signpost. I'm getting out and I'm marking this day. I'm saying this is the day of salvation for me. This is the day where I confess that I'm out of tune and I receive that the Lord wants to put me back 
in sync with him. So whether you're there in either of those camps or whether you also just need to pray for a friend, that they would come to know what you have. We have some people that are here to pray with you. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to open it up for uh, the invitation to come down and receive prayer. And, uh, and then in a short while, we'll go to the table. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are putting all things right. We thank you that we can celebrate being made new. We thank you that you don't leave us in our brokenness. And so now, Holy Father, I pray that you would do business with every man, woman, and child in this place, God, that you would, your whispers would break through, that nothing would impede us hearing your call to us. And then would you give us the courage, God, to get out of the car, to say, this is the day I've been here. I was coming here or I just showed up. I just realized I'm here, but I want this, God. I want to be made whole. I want to be put right with you. So, God, would you just uh, give us the courage to be just take that step of humility and say, God, would you just put me back in tune? Would you teach me that song of old so that I can just dance with wild abandon? In your name we pray, amen.